Hello and welcome to the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart. And this is part two of a discussion with Dr. Arjun Ghosh, all about cardio-oncology. Arjun is a cardiologist from Barts Hospital in London, who is a specialist in cardio-oncology. And with his colleagues, he runs one of the largest cardio-oncology services in the UK. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And let's talk a little bit about treatment and intervention then in these patients. Arjun, you talk in your article about uh, effectively treating the complications along standard uh, guidelines uh, as mandated by the various societies. Can you talk a little bit more about that and perhaps whether there are any specific therapies that have been used or trialed uh, in uh, cardiotoxicity, particularly relating to chemotherapy? Cardio-oncology has really, um, over the last, I guess, um, 10 years, uh, kind of exponentially um, exploded. And uh, we now have a number of guidelines looking at treatment. Uh, We had guidelines from the European Society of Medical Oncology in 2012. We had the European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging Guidelines, I mentioned, in 2014. The ESC came out with their position statement in 2016. The American Society of Clinical Oncology in 2017. So uh, trying to synthesize um, all of these guidelines um, is quite a challenge because um, there are differences. But I think the major points are when the patient develops heart failure and uh, left ventricular dysfunction and they're symptomatic, then uh, paradoxically it's easy because you follow uh, traditional heart failure guidelines, be they European, American, uh, depending upon where you practice. The more challenging situation is when there is a subtle decrease in their cardiac function, be this measured by um, 3D left ventricular ejection fraction or by TLS, and um, they are minimally symptomatic. You know, how do you intervene? When do you intervene? And um, the guidelines are quite loose on this because really the, the evidence specifically in this context, um, you know, is very limited and is growing, but at, at the moment is limited. So. Currently, um, the European Association of uh, Medical Oncology, the uh, European Society of Medical Oncology, their guidelines are probably the most liberal and they really do leave a lot to the clinician and they give a lot of leeway to the clinician to say that if a patient is at high risk, you can introduce um, prophylactic medications such as ACE inhibition or angiotensin receptor blockade or beta blockade. And um, by high-risk patients, they really mean patients who have received high doses of anthracyclines, um, significant doses of radiotherapy to the heart, uh, additional agents close to the anthracyclines in terms of chronology, such as uh, Herceptin. Um, those patients who are elderly, those patients who are younger, and they do recommend um, these uh, cardioprotective medications at that stage. And um, I, I guess one of the big challenges for cardio-oncology as a field is to try and improve these guidelines so we have more um, evidence-based therapy. And um, if I talk briefly about some of the recent trials uh, in this field, um, which you know, are trying to kind of um, improve this area. So the um, one of the big trials that came out uh, a few years ago 
was the PRADA trial, which was the prevention of cardiac dysfunction during adjuvant breast cancer therapy. And uh, in this study in uh, breast cancer patients with anthracyclines, some of whom also received Herceptin surgery and radiotherapy, they pretreated with um, candesartan and uh, also metoprolol. And what they found was that candesartan was um, somewhat protective against declines in systolic uh, left ventricular function, and metoprolol was potentially protective in terms of diastolic function. Um, there was a an, another recent study, the OVERCOME study, which was the prevention of left ventricular dysfunction with enalapril and carvedilol. And uh, patients in this study had a variety of hematological malignancies and uh, combined treatment with enalapril and carvedilol uh, helped to preserve the left ventricular ejection fraction compared to um, control patients. There was another recent study, the Manticore study, which was the multidisciplinary approach to novel therapies in cardio-oncology research trial. And uh, in this trial, perindropril and bisoprolol both helped to protect against declines in left ventricular ejection fraction in patients exposed to Herceptin trastuzumab, although um, they didn't uh, achieve a difference in the primary outcome for prevention of left ventricular remodeling, which was uh, their main aim. And uh, the last study, which uh, uh, has, has very recently come out uh, this year, was uh, a Brazilian study um, called CC, which was the carvedilol effect in preventing chemotherapy-induced cardiotoxicity. And in this study, they looked at uh, nearly 200 patients uh, undergoing anthracycline therapy for uh, HER2-negative breast cancer, and they found that COVID law did not protect against a drop in left ventricular ejection fraction by more than 10%, which was the primary outcome. However, there was um, a decrease in troponin elevation and there was some protection against um, diastolic function. So um, uh, I would say that in summary, the studies suggest that in certain patient groups, such as the higher risk groups, uh, there is definitely a role for cardioprotective medications such as ACE inhibitors, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, and uh, beta blockers. But um, unfortunately, um, the biggest questions are um, you know, which patients, uh, when to intervene, uh, how long to intervene for, and uh, what we should be using as a marker of whether our intervention is working, whether it is uh, imaging-based, whether it is uh, biomarker-based. So, um, you know, there's a variety of um, unanswered questions. And um, I think an important point to just add here is that um, uh, one of the focuses thus far in cardio-oncology and probably for um, somebody who's not... uh, very intimately involved in the field is that there is very much a focus on uh, left ventricular systolic dysfunction and um, even when you define cardiotoxicity, uh, the emphasis very much is, is on that. And I, I think that um, we're doing disservice to many of our patients who actually have all of these other complications of um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy as we've touched upon, such as the arrhythmias, hypertension, angina, um, arterial thrombosis, radiotherapy-induced valve disease. And um, I I think um, this is something that we we really need to look at. We need to consider expanding the definition of cardiotoxicity. 
and this is something that um, di different uh, international organizations um, are looking at. Uh, this is something that I and colleagues um, did comment upon in, in an article in Open Heart earlier this year. And I think there's a growing realization that um, you know, we really need to educate ourselves um, as a community and uh, other cardiologists and oncologists that um, we need to look beyond just uh, left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and reading your papers, that, that's become clear to me as well. Um, where can the uh, younger listeners, the fellows in training, uh, where can they go, Arjun, to get more information about how to subspecialize in the field and also potentially how to do research in cardio-oncology? So uh, at the moment, cardio-oncology per se is uh, not included in the 2016 cardiology curriculum for UK trainees. Uh, however, um, cardio-oncology questions have been asked in the uh, European exam for general cardiology. So that's uh, slightly a bit of a catch-22 situation. So um, I guess what they're trying to say is that cardio-oncology is important and you need to know about it. And I know that there is a push to include cardio-oncology in um, the new iteration of the cardi cardiology curriculum for UK trainees. Uh, there are a number of uh, centers that uh, do provide uh, cardio-oncology training in the UK. Um, for example, at my center itself, um, at Bart's Heart Center at University College London, uh, we do offer cardio-oncology fellowships, and we've had um, UK trainees um, involved in these fellowships. We've also had people come from Mexico, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, um, really just to expose themselves to you know, quite a large cardio-oncology service. And I think uh, going forward, um, uh, if you think about uh, UK training, uh, cardio-oncology uh, probably would come as a post-CCT credit. Um, I think that's the way um, training is moving, specialized training in the UK. Um, I mean, it's too early to say, but that's just the, the, the feeling that um, I have um, look, looking at the landscape. And um, if there are fellows uh, looking for research, uh, as you as you asked, um, there are a number of different uh, research projects going on in cardio-oncology um, in a number of different centers in the UK. Um, I can talk about um, one of the trials that's currently ongoing uh, at uh, my center, so at uh, the Hatter Cardiovascular Research Institute, which is part of um, UCL. Um, we currently have uh, cardio-oncology fellows uh, undertaking the Eric Onk trial, which is a trial looking at uh, the uh, potential utility of remote ischemic conditioning in patients undergoing uh, anthracycline-based cancer therapy, and whether this can produce a biomarker change, whether this can produce uh, an imaging change, and whether this can uh, introduce a prognostic change uh, from a cardioprotective point of view in these patients. Um, we also have um, studies in uh, echocardiography and cardiac MRI-based uh, research that are currently ongoing. Uh, so, so a variety of um, different projects um, that are taking place um, really um, throughout the country and in a number of centers. And finally, just for people in more of a managerial situation in their own hospitals and they wanted to set up a cardio-oncology service, are there any sort of top two or three pointers that you could give people as to how that's best accomplished? Is it something that needs to be done in collaboration with a, with a teaching hospital academic center or is the role for a district general hospital, a smaller hospital to set up such a service? Sure. So I think that's um, obviously an extremely important question because 
I think one of the important points to stress is that cardio-oncology exists everywhere. Um, cancer patients are there in every hospital, and um, it's the same cancer patient in a district general hospital. Um, the, the same patient will one day be in a tertiary center. So, so the problem is, is uh, widespread, and we really do, as a field, need to facilitate um, these services everywhere. And um, I think one of the struggles that um, we had when we were trying to set up a service is that the data to suggest that a service will um, improve outcomes is limited. It's growing, but it's uh, there, there's not a number of studies that can say that um, you must have this service because it will lead to improved patient outcomes. So when, when we were setting up a service, um, we, we really had uh, three big questions. One was... Um, what would happen if there's no service? Uh, one was, does it actually improve outcomes? And then uh, the third question was, surely in these um, times it's going to cost too much. So I, I think um, I could answer all of those questions. There's data from Ireland which shows that uh, when they didn't have a service, they looked at their breast cancer patients and they found that uh, when they retrospectively looked at their echocardiograms, um, more than uh, 10% of their patients had more than a 10% drop in left ventricular ejection fraction, and 60% of these patients did not have a recovery of their ejection fraction once they came off the Herceptin. And only 30% of these patients actually ever made it to a cardiology, a general cardiology clinic. Um, coming on to whether uh, this is going to improve outcomes, there's data from uh, a lot of Canadian groups that have shown when there is a cardio-oncology service, the majority of patients actually manage to get through their cancer treatment. 85% um, of these patients complete their cardiac treatment, and the majority are alive, 77% at five years. And of those who died, 87% um, was due to cancer progression and only 6% due to a cardiac cause. So potentially having a cardio-oncology service can cause a prognostic benefit to your patient. And um, the third point that um, when you're setting up a service, uh, especially in these financially constrained times, is about cost. And um, you know, there's been work which has come up from international centers, multi-center uh, work, which uh, has looked at Markov models to compare survival um, for cancer patients when you are looking at universal cardioprotection, giving all the patients um, you know, ACE inhibition and beta blockers, looking at left ventricular ejection fraction guided therapy, or looking for uh, therapy guided with global longitudinal strain. And um, what this uh, study showed was that um, the maximum survival that was 82% of five years was obtained using uh, a strain-based model, uh, echocardiographic strain-based model. And uh, when they looked at the financials, um, the cost of this was actually uh, financially the cheapest as well. So uh, in terms of cost, in terms of uh, patient outcomes, and in terms of um, detriment if such a service does not exist, I think um, all of these are in favor of having a cardio-oncology service. Uh, but one of the important points is to convince the senior management team, which hopefully with these data like this you can, and it's also then bringing your local oncologist, your local clinical oncologist, uh, your radiotherapy specialist, your medical oncologist, your hemato-oncologist on board. Uh, the other things when you're setting up a service is to think about um, 
the actual practicalities of the clinic, you really probably want to locate it close to the oncology clinics. Um, do you want it to be a one-stop service where the patient comes in the morning and they have their imaging and are assessed the same day? You need to consider having um, specialist nurses. You need to obviously bring the imaging departments on board. You need training for the echocardiographers. Uh, they need to be up to speed with um, 3D assessment. They need to be up to speed with uh, GLS. There's also the um, role of having inpatient cover for these patients. And um, when we set up our service, uh, one of the important things that um, we learned at the very beginning was that education is important, um, extremely important, not only to educate cardiologists, uh, to educate uh, oncologists as well. Um, and this is a way to bring oncologists on board uh, to expand the service. Um, to educate ourselves, we set up our cardio-oncology MDT because at the moment, given the um, guidelines and the, the, the lack of uh, data, the increasing amount of evidence, um, we really need to have local uh, guidelines and local protocols and how best to manage these patients. And often the, the first step to this is to discuss many patients at the MDT to, to really have a better understanding of, of how the field is developing. Um, so I think th these are probably the, the, the common components. Uh, and whenever you're setting up a new service, um, you know, it, it's a lot of work, but you should never get disheartened. I remember the first clinic I did, I had uh, one patient. Um, the second clinic I did, I had uh, no patients. And um, now uh, across both the sites, we have around 50 patients a week, which is you know, one of the biggest services in the world. So, you know, it, it's definitely achievable. And, um, it should be considered in uh, DGH hospitals as well. And we also actually have had a number of um, collaborators from District General Hospitals, cardiologists, who have approached us to really understand how they may be able to set up such services um, in their hospitals. And um, it may not be to such a scale, but having uh, a cardiologist in a hospital with an interest in this area, I think, is the, the first step because uh, then the oncologist will have a point of reference. They will know who to turn to with these patients. And hopefully that cardiologist will be able to uh, recognize um, the variety of cardiotoxicity with the cancer therapies and also facilitate the urgent uh, review of these patients because that is one of the key roles of the cardio-oncology service is to get these patients seen very rapidly. Uh, and literally, um, uh, in cancer terms, we're talking about within days that these patients need to be seen because it's often that their cancer treatment is on hold and, you know, potentially life-saving uh, surgery is dependent upon the decision that you give. So, so having uh, such an individual in a district general hospital would very much facilitate this process. Well, that's just a fantastic overview, Arjun, of the uh, entire field of cardio-oncology. I want to thank you very much indeed for joining me today. And I'll put your contact details, your Twitter handle, etc., and also links to various papers that you've published recently in the show notes so people can go and find out more. Well, thank you very much, James. It's been my pleasure to uh, tell the listeners about this uh, ever-expanding field of cardio-oncology and uh, very happy to hear back from the listeners about this. Brilliant. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast with Arjun Ghosh all about cardio-oncology. Please remember it is a two-part podcast and part one is available, was released 
in early December 2018 and should be in the podcast app of your choice. I'd be very grateful if you could share the podcast and tell your friends and colleagues about it as we try to increase the audience and reach more and more people in the cardiovascular arena. Thanks very much for subscribing and thanks for listening.